0: This just in. An anti-Semitic mob swarms into Dagestan airport in search of Jewish people. Meanwhile, Israel feels the heat from its allies, including the US and the UK. We'll have the latest analysis on what's going on in the Middle East and more. Welcome to Constable Confidential. I'm Simon Constable. Joining me today is Ben Habib. He is co-deputy leader of Reform UK. Thanks for joining us, Ben.
1: Thank you, Simon, for having me on. A A pleasure.
0: Explain to us what is Reform UK? What is it all about?
1: So Reform UK, I would say, if I were to describe it in a nutshell, is a um, centre-right, pro-British, pro-policies made for the benefit of the United Kingdom um, party that seeks to instill back into UK political discourse um, small-c conservatism, Um, It is our view that the Conservative Party has actually increasingly shifted from its traditional place on the centre-right of politics to the left in order to try and budge the Labour Party out of office. And what we've now got uh, in the political mainstream of the UK is effectively a choice between two left-wing parties, the Labour Party, which is slightly further left than the Conservative Party, but the Conservative Party itself, which is left-wing. And And Reform UK, I would say, is the heir of small-c conservatism, putting the UK first, being proud of the United Kingdom, believing in a deregulated economy, a low-tax economy, the promotion of the private sector, promoting aspiration over uh, dependency, and promoting wealth creation over wealth redistribution.
0: Okay, that's very helpful, because not everybody knows about Reform UK especially in, in America and other parts of Europe. This weekend, we saw anti-Semitic mobs swarm into Dagestan airport looking for Jews to kill. And at the same time, we've got Israel feeling the heat from its allies, including the US and the UK, saying, let's have a pause in the fighting in Gaza. What's your view on that?
1: Well, I am broadly in favour of Israel's position and... um the, the, the Palestinian argument is rooted entirely in the injustices of the past. And they always go back to 1948, the establishment of Israel, the of Palestinian people from their lands, in order to justify their position. But we have to move on from that narrow approach. Israel exists. It, as far as I'm concerned, has a completely legitimate right to exist. And since it exists, it has an absolute legitimate right to defend itself. And the events of 7th October, the invasion of Israel by uh, Hamas and the killing, gratuitous killing of men, women, and children um, in the most brutal manner requires Israel to respond. And if you put your mind into, if you put your mind in in the mindset of the Middle Eastern kind of politics, You know, they're they they much more driven by projections of power than they are by the rule of law. In the West, we tend to interpret everything through our own prism of judgment, which is largely based on the rule of law. But in the Middle East, if you're attacked the way Israel was attacked, the only way you're going to protect yourself is making your enemy know that your response is going to be 10 times as big as the attack they mounted on you. In order for Israel to survive, it needs to give a very, very strong response to the attacks from Hamas. And I understand that. I'm half Pakistani, so I understand how power, the projection of power, means a lot more in that region than the rule of law. And in order to see off the existential threat that Israel faces, it must react with force.
0: There are many people out there saying, yes, Hamas needs to get a come up and on the attack from october 7th but what about the unaffiliated palestinians or the people in in gaza who were not guilty of this they seem to be getting hurt as well what's your thought on that
1: well that is it is a tragedy of war that when two countries go to war sadly civilians die but the 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 the, the, the cause of the death in Palest in gaza I can't call it Palestine, but the, the cause of Palestinian death in Gaza is Hamas. Hamas knew what they were doing. They were egging on Israel. And the reason they did it, in my view, just to digress for a second, but I think it's important to understand it, is because Saudi was on the verge of recognizing formally the existence of Israel, U.S.-Israeli deal that was in the making, and they've successfully done it. Saudi has completely withdrawn from the negotiating table. So this war was started by Hamas. And the big mistake we
0: to, made- to, to to butt in there, yeah. the, the, Hamas is an Iranian-backed military organization, and we, we've got to got absolutely make that very cl- clear here. Yeah, very clear. And and that and also so is Hezbollah and various other groups in the Middle East, all going back to one point, and that's that is Iran. Can you talk about the your view on Britain taking refugees from Gaza? Because I think some people might find it controversial, but the thinking behind it is what I'm really after. I, I,
1: absolutely, we should not be taking refugees from Gaza. As as awful as the plight of the people in Gaza is, they've been governed now for the last 17 years by a terrorist organisation that is, I'm sure, embedded in the youth as well as the uh, uh, as well as the elderly and right across all the age groups, and particularly the youth. And their ideology, their educational system and their ideology is based on the total destruction of Israel, you know, from the river to the sea, from the river that goes north, south on the West Bank, on on the east of the West Bank, all the way to the sea. They want to obliterate Israel. Indeed, I think they wish to uh, establish a fourth Muslim caliphate across the Arabian Peninsula. These people cannot be negotiated with. And that ideology Has been embedded in the people. For us now to open our borders to Palestinians who've been bombed by Israel, an ally of the United Kingdom, who would come to this country undoubtedly with antipathy and contempt in their hearts for what we stand for, our values and our backing of Israel, would be deeply dangerous. What we need to do is settle the conflict in the Middle East, We've made this mistake repeatedly. We made it in Afghanistan. We made it in Iraq. We made it in North Africa. We stirred up those countries with various military interventions. And then uh, on the back of guilt or whatever it was, we opened our borders and we've imported forces into the UK uh, and indeed the US and across Europe, which are antipathetic to our existence. And that's very dangerous. And it would be doubly dangerous with people coming in from Gaza.
0: Let's move on to another crisis that's happening of a a different order of magnitude. The cost of living crisis in the UK is really quite awful. It reminds me of my childhood in the 1970s, which I realize is a very long time ago, but you you may remember this too, when prices were going up so quickly that you wanted to buy everything now rather than wait just a week. What would the Reform UK party do differently Than the Conservative Party is doing now to fix that problem, because that goes to the core of society, being able to feed yourself, being able to have a roof over your head.
1: Well, the most inflationary and economically damaging policy being pursued by the Conservative government is the inexorable drive to net zero. And I don't want to get into a debate on whether or not the climate is changing and whether it's mankind that's you know causing that change, but there are better ways of reducing carbon emissions. Even if you accept the narrative, the carbon emissions need to be reduced. The mechanism by which we are going about it in the UK is deeply harming to our uh, to our economy and causing and embedding a lot of the inflation, which is damaging people's ability to uh, afford goods. And so we've got to get and off we're, we're,
0: ta- we're talking there about very expensive electric vehicles, which people are going to be forced to buy sooner or later that that's part of the issue right
1: yeah so i mean the way the way they're getting people to change their behavior is manifold but to give you a couple of examples we have something called the clean heat market mechanism which penalizes producers of gas boilers if they sell um if they don't sell a number of heat exchange pumps at the same time and and the ratchet Um, And it ratchets up the numbers as you head towards 2030. You've got to sell more heat exchange pumps as a proportion of total um, uh, uh, methods of heating your home as you get towards 2030. And if you don't hit those targets, the manufacturers and wholesalers of uh, uh, of gas boilers have to charge more for their gas boilers. So they're embedding inflation, making gas boilers deliberately more expensive. They've got the same approach to internal combustion engines for cars. And this is forcing up the cost of not just electric cars and everything else, but everything in the United Kingdom. You know, right across the board, it's inflationary. And the other really awful aspect of our drive to net zero is our deciding politically to turn our backs on the North Sea and the um, availability of cheap domestic energy in, in return for adopting technologies which aren't able to deliver The requisite amount of power for the United Kingdom, and then absurdly to bridge the gap that we have in our energy supply, we're importing fracked, fracked gas, natural gas, yes, from America, from America, which has been which has been liquefied at vast cost, put in ships, brought across to the United Kingdom with a big carbon emissions trailer in the process, and then converted back into gas and and sold to our people at much more at much higher prices than it would be if we'd extracted the gas from the north sea in the first place the march towards net zero is the most damaging economic policy reform uk would ditch that straight away
0: can we talk a little bit about rishi sunak's Greenlighting the first coal mine in England for three decades, and what you thought of that? Because one thing I do know is that natural gas is much cleaner than coal. What are your thoughts?
1: Well, I completely agree. And if we'd had joined up thinking on natural gas, we wouldn't be forced into the knee-jerk reaction to fire up a, a you know, to, to 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 restart a coal-fired power station. What we should have done, and by the way, the EU was very close before uh, lockdowns kicked off very close to recognizing gas as a clean form of energy as part of an acceptable uh, part of the acceptable energy to be used in order to get to net zero but for some reason gas has now been vilified in you know in that ideology and um, so i mean the, the i think firing up the 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 coal power station is evidence that we haven't got joined up thinking on our our energy policy. In March 2021, Simon, I don't know if you're aware, but in March 2021, um, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, who was Chancellor uh, at the time, implemented something called the North Sea Transition Deal, which was a requirement for fossil fuel companies effectively to, to wean themselves off ahead of our markets and our ability to deal with new te- new technologies, wean themselves off North Sea fossil fuel production and replace it with you know, wind farms and onshore um, wind, farm, offshore wind farms, onshore wind farms and other renewables. So we've absolutely eschewed our own natural resources. And that's completely the opposite of what the US has done. The US has fracked its way to energy independence and on the back of that energy independence, it's then launched the biggest drive towards uh, what, it, what I think the Americans call the climate crisis in order to solve the climate crisis, the Inflation Reduction Act, $370 billion of expenditure. But it's done it, whether or not you agree with that expenditure, it, it, it has at least done it from a position of strength because it's energy independent. We've done it the other way around. We've deliberately become energy dependent and then forced our, forced our manufacturers, forcing the British people to buy ever more expensive fuel because we haven't got the renewables to replace fossil fuel.
0: And, and does that mean you would if if you were in power, if you if you took parliament and your, your party did, would you be going after a similar way of doing things that Joe Biden did?
1: Well, I would definitely um I, I would definitely come off the carbon emission targets required by the Paris Accord. Um, and by various other treaties that we've signed, I would ditch those, and I would have a much more sensible, pragmatic approach to reducing carbon emissions. Look, you know, you and I were, you you talked about the 1970s um, uh, cost of living crisis that both of us experienced. And in those days, you will recall, Simon, my parents used to say to me, recycle, reuse, reduce, recycle, and reuse. It's basic common sense to, 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 to operate, to live your life, in a frugal manner and not to waste, not to have gratuitous carbon emissions, not to produce gratuitous amounts of plastic, which then damage our sea and our and our marine life, et cetera. Um, but you don't get to Nirvana by bankrupting yourself. You've got to take a pragmatic route to get there. And at the moment when we've sacrificed pragmatism in the interests of the British people for the pursuit of this ideology,
0: and that seems to be a shame. And the one thing you didn't list on there was your parents saying, turn the lights off when you're not and in the turn room. turn the lights off. Exactly. Turn the lights off when you're not in the room. <laughs> Moving on. The Conservative Party seems to have dropped the ball on establishing new trade deals with speed after the Brexit vote. There seems to have been nothing was done between that vote in 2016 and the actual reality of Brexit happening. What do you think went wrong?
1: Well, I think the the Conservative party lost, dropped the ball on everything after the vote for Brexit, um, not just trade deals. What it had to do immediately after the vote, um, v- vote was in favor to leave, what it had to do was prepare the country to leave the European Union, if necessary, without a deal. And the notion that we couldn't have survived as an independent country outside the EU without a formal trading arrangement with the EU is a fundamentally flawed notion. What we needed to do was to get ready to deregulate, cut taxes, um, provide government funding where necessary to plug holes. We needed a complete panoply of policies getting the the United Kingdom ready. One of the reasons, and you may not know this Simon, but one of the reasons I I left the Conservative Party, because I was a Conservative Party donor, in fact, in those days, one of the reasons I left them was going to meetings with cabinet ministers and finding that they were not preparing the country at all for Brexit because they believed they were going to get a deal and they were going to get a good deal. And as a businessman, I knew that was daft as brushes because the only way you get a good deal is being prepared for no deal. And so whether or not they anticipated getting a good deal, it was, was, they were absolutely obliged. Their fiduciary obligations required them to prepare the country for no deal. And they took no steps in that direction. So in the end, we, the biggest trade deal that we've done and the trade deal for which they were least prepared and the worst trade deal that we've done, in my view, is the one that we've done with the EU, which is neither here nor there. It doesn't give us any of the freedoms that Brexiteers wanted to deregulate and to cut taxes and to propel the United Kingdom forward. Um, and it doesn't give us any of the really significant benefits that we we would, would, would arguably have had if we would simply remained in the EU. And one of the things I said during the general election in 2019 was that I would rather have remained in the EU than sign the trade deal that, we, that Boris Johnson had negotiated with it. And, um, and I hold by that. I think it's a really awful deal. But to your point on trade deals, what we did, uh, again, was sit on our hands, as you rightly point out, and then we rolled over a lot of the trade deals the EU already had. I think we rolled over about 50 trade deals. And rolling over means effectively taking the trade deals that the EU had negotiated and adopting them verbatim between ourselves and, and the third country, whichever third country that happened to be. And that was, in. My, I haven't done a complete review of those trade deals, but I reckon we've made a lot of mistakes in doing uh, in adopting that approach. And the reason I say that is that the trade deals that the EU did with these other countries were all, predicated on the recognition that Germany is an export powerhouse. So those trade deals from the third country's perspective would have been protecting themselves against German exports. The United Kingdom is a massive net importer of goods. Just about every other, just a, with just about every country in the world, with the exception of the US, we run a trade deficit. That makes us a client of the rest of the world. And that would have enabled us to get much better trade terms than the EU was able to get with Germany being such a massive net exporter. And so we made a big fanfare of having rolled over so many deals. But I reckon we've made a lot of mistakes en route.
0: Well, uh, particularly the trade deal where the devil is in the details always on every trade deal. And it needs people who are very detail oriented to look through that Now, you have a view that the EU is splintering or is likely to splinter. Would you explain why you think that and what is going to happen?
1: So the EU, primarily without wishing to teach grandmothers to suck eggs, is primarily a a political um, setup. It is for ever closer. It says union, ever closer union. But what they mean is ever closer political union. And all the economic policies of the European Union hang off the political imperative of closer union. And in the pursuit of closer union, what the EU has done is set up the euro, which prevents many countries from being able to deflate their currencies. In or, Any member of the euro can't deflate their currency in difficult economic times. They have to internally deflate their economies
0: And that, sorry, just to to, uh, put an aside in here, my understanding from most people I talk to, most economists, is that Germany's euro is priced too low and everyone else's is priced too high, which gives Germany a consistent advantage and gives other countries, especially those that are highly indebted like Italy, a big problem.
1: Absolutely. And if you look at the, it's really interesting, if you look at the German-Greek, I mean, Greek is notoriously known to be a bad economy in in, in the European Union and a member of the euro. If you look at the Greek trade deficit that it ran after it joined the euro, it almost entirely mirrors the trade surplus that Germany ran with Greece. And the funny thing, Simon, is it's almost a Ponzi scheme because it was German banks lending money to Greece to buy German goods. And so even though it was Greece that became highly indebted on the back of the uh, the euro as a result of that unholy rela- trading relationship with Germany, because it was German banks lending Greece all this money, the, 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 the baby came back to, to Germany. The ball came back to Germany and then Germany effectively bailed itself out by handing all the debt that it was owed by Greece to the European Central Bank. That's how they got rid of the problem. And then the ECB did a, you know, play it long. That's deal. the
0: European Central Bank. Yes, the ECB. right? That's the
1: European Central Bank. Exactly. So Germany had this massive trade benefit with um, Greece, funded entirely by German banks. Greece hit the skids, effectively went bust, and the European Central Bank had to bail Germany out. No one talks about it because it bought the german debt volu- the, the, the 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 debt that was owed to germany by greece was bought by the european central bank and um, so you see the ponzi scheme that is the euro which is a politically driven uh, economic monetary unit and it is fundamentally flawed because none of the economies in europe work in tandem they're not they're not they're all working at different speeds and so what you've got now in europe is very highly indebted countries right across Europe. And you've got collectivized debt. So even if you look at Germany, and you say, well, it's not as highly indebted as Greece or France or Italy or Spain. Actually, when everything goes fut, it's gonna be Germany that picks up the tab because it's collectivized through the European Central Bank. Um, so it's a fundamentally flawed economic model that's propping up the European Union. And, and so that's why that's the significant politi- uh, the economic reason why I don't think the European uh, European Union long-term can survive. But there are cultural reasons as well, Simon. And in the pursuit of this closer union, what the EU has done and is continuing to do is hollow out nation states. It doesn't want a proud independent France making policies for French interests. It doesn't want a proud, independent Italy, a proud, independent, sovereign Germany. It wants states being amalgamated under its jurisdiction. So, freedom of movement is a very good example of you know getting rid of borders and trying to create this European superstate. But in the pursuit of hollowing out nation states, in the pursuit of dumbing down their languages, their history, their culture. Um, what they're doing is creating animosity in amongst the peoples of Europe. And I don't think it's any accident, by the way, that there's been this massive increase in immigration in Europe. If you want to dumb down national identity because you want to create a European superstate, the way to do it is to have lots of immigrants because they don't buy into German culture. They don't buy into French culture. They'll buy into a European Union culture. And all of this is causing schisms in Europe. You, you mentioned you live in France. Well, a few months ago, when sadly that was the Algerian, um, a young Algerian was shot by police in Paris. Um, can't remember his name. You'll, you'll perhaps remember Simon, but all of France was lit up with interethnic violence from Marseille all the way to Calais. There was, you know, there was, uh,
0: Yes, the, yes, it, yes, it was, and it was it was it's quite awful. And the, the army yeah. and the gendarmes were out on the streets trying yeah. to con- con- contain the violence. And that is true of of other countries too. Right now, we're seeing violence in the UK. Yeah, across absolutely. The and
1: all of this is born out of a desire to hollow out nation states and to create the EU amalgam. And that is going to force politics. That together with bad economics. Um, high youth unemployment, is going to cause civil strife. We have nearly had that in in Greece until the European Central Bank bailed it out in 2012. Um, And it's going to cause extremes in in local politics. And when you get extremes in local politics born out of um, grievances of the sort that I've been discussing, particularly high youth unemployment, You're going to stress the European Union. The whole project is going to come under stress. And we've already seen some of the member states pulling at the seams, wanting to go back to being more independent and more nation state orientated. The best examples being Hungary, Poland, um, Meloni in Italy had a go at it. But what I say to center right parties across Europe is it's not just the United Kingdom that needs to be a proud sovereign independent state making policies for the interests of the British people. In order for the UK to do well, we need France to do well. We need Greece to do well. We need Germany to do well. We want a proud France. We want a proud Germany. We don't want this amalgam. You know, that's not right. It's not traditional. It's against the human spirit for this amalgam to be created. And I think that's the fundamental problem and the heart of the problem of the European Union.
0: And we shall see what happens on that. Thank you very much, Ben Habib, co-deputy leader of Reform UK. It was a pleasure having you on the show.
1: Thank you, Simon.
0: I'm Simon Constable. That's it.